Well, good morning to you. Um, I'll have you stand in a moment for the reading of Scripture, but I'll say a few things before we do that. Is it, can I move this microphone out of the way? Okay. All right. Never know about that. Um, yes, I, so I'm Colin Peters, as, as uh, the men introduced me. I appreciate that, and, and I do get to work with RUF as an area coordinator for the southwest area, which basically is Texas and Oklahoma. And my wife Mary is here with me this morning too, so you can greet her this morning too. Um, and uh, I, I know Ryan Arkema and have since he came to Arlington some years ago, and Ryan and I got to serve on the campus ministries committee in our presbytery together. And we were on that committee together when we found Nate Waddell and called him to come and begin RUF on the campus here next door. And so it's been fun for me to, to see that work grow, and I'm so grateful for the good work that Nate did during his few, too few years here, um, even during the COVID season, which was such a difficulty in starting up, and yet still God blessed that effort, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, part of my job is to seek to find a new campus minister. And so we're working on that, but I'm grateful for Shaner Newsom. Shaner, uh, perhaps you've met or are aware of. Shaner is a pastor in uh, our presbytery who's been a campus minister before. He and I served as campus ministers similar years. He longer than I, um, but he is available to be a part-time campus minister here on this campus um, in, the, in the time being. So praise God for that. That's a fantastic blessing. Um, and I'm so glad that he's doing that work and continuing that work while we search for a new campus minister, even as you search for a new pastor. Uh, I love your building here. I've been here before, but just not on a Sunday, so I'm glad to get to be here for a worship service. All that said, my question for you this morning is, what is grace? It's one of the most fundamental questions that we as Christians need to wrestle with and think about and live with and live in, and we all know, perhaps, as Paul wrote, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and yet, what is grace? Sometimes we have a hard time understanding maybe quite what that is. John, in his gospel account in chapter 5, gives us a great picture of what grace is, and so if you'll stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant us eyes to see your grace, to understand it, to live in it through your word by the work of your spirit. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So this is one of the great signs that John offers in his gospel to identify Jesus. As John gives us his narrative account of the gospel story, he shows Jesus demonstrating himself to be the word that was with God, the word that was God, the light of men that brings life as John poetically began his gospel account. And by these various signs, Jesus declared who he was. He had miraculously provided wine at the wedding in Cana, perhaps you recall, and thus declared himself to be the groom of all grooms. And he had healed a Roman official's son with just a word. And thus had declared himself to be the authority of all authorities. And now to this insignificant man in a back alley of Jerusalem, he declares himself to be grace. So what is grace? It's one of those fundamental questions for Christians, isn't it? And it's a word that we toss around so easily in the Christian life, and we recognize that grace is important. But what is grace after all? We have kind of a Sunday school answer that we often will give, and it's not wrong. Grace is unmerited favor. That's a good answer. But there's there's more dimension to it than just that. One might say that grace is actually God's doing of good for those who would do him evil. It's God's doing of good for those who would do him evil. And that is so contrary to our souls. I confess to you, that is hard for me because I don't want to do good to those who do me evil. We've all been done evil 
by someone, and we don't want to do good in return. That's the nature of our fallen hearts. And thus, grace is contrary to who we are, but it's so fundamental to the gospel, we can't miss it, we can't ignore it, because apart from grace, there is no gospel. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? So Jesus travels into chapter 5 of John's account here out of several interactions with people who responded to him in their own sorts of ways. Nicodemus, you might remember that story from John chapter 3. Nicodemus was that very bright theologian, a Jewish leader, a theologian who came to, ju- to Jesus at night with questions. And, G- and Nicodemus responded to Jesus with great respect. And then there was, in John chapter 4, a marginalized woman whom Jesus met at the well in Samaria, a Samaritan woman. And this woman, Jesus told her everything that she ever did, and she was amazed by that. And she responded to Jesus with astonishment. And she went into the town and she said to everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever said. She was astonished at Jesus. And then there was a Roman official also in John chapter 4. I already mentioned him. And he had sought Jesus out for his son who was on the verge of death, seeking Jesus for his son's healing. And this Roman official responded with enormous faith, believing that his son would be healed simply because Jesus said that he would. And now this physically disabled man in John chapter 5, whose needs are more obvious than most people's needs, doesn't seem to respond to Jesus at all, does he? And here is the bigness of grace. Grace is so big that it doesn't require that you are looking for it when it comes for you. Grace is so big that it it comes when we're not looking at all. In fact, when it comes, we often are very slow to understand, and yet still it comes. Because that's the nature of the grace of God. The Lord extends a miraculous sign here to a very ordinary man to help us begin to see that his grace is bigger than we know it to be. His grace is bigger than labels, and it's bigger than barriers. It's bigger than judgments, even. All those things we see here in this account God's grace is bigger than the labels that we live. You know, we all we, we wear labels, inevitably. We all are wearing labels this morning. But more than that, we actually live our labels. We let them define us. And we know that every time an election season comes along, which it seems to do quite often, it's coming fast again, isn't it? And every time election season comes along, after the election, you know, with these recent Years we've seen on the news, whether in print or online, you see this map of the United States that's red and blue according to the counties and how the majority in those counties voted, whether they voted for one party or another. They're red counties or they're blue counties, and they are labeled thus. And you can look at that map, and, and I, I know you're more like me than we are different. And you see that map, and you think, aha. That's where those people live, right? Whether you're red or blue, either way, that's where those people live. You know, you can look at that map and and see that the the blue 
counties are the Pacific coastline and the urban areas and the, the Mississippi Delta and the far northeast. And you can look at that map and think, well, if the blue people only live there, then how did they win? Because the rest of it's red. You know, and we meet each other and we think, are you blue or are you red? We, we label it. We live by our labels, don't we? That's just the way that we, we function. Whether you're red or blue, whether you're Christian or not Christian, whether you're anti this or pro that, whether you're lower class, middle class, upper class, however the world might see you, we live by our labels. And this is the very thing that Jesus found when he arrived at this pool. This is the, the, the sheep gate in Jerusalem. There's a pool there where the temple sheep were brought to be washed in order to go into the temple for their death sentence to be sacrificed in the temple, but they would be washed in this pool to be cleaned up. And there were colonnades, John tells us, surrounding the pool, columns with a a roof over the columns. And uh, so they were covered walkways. And John tells us, in these covered walkways lay a multitude of invalids. Now, I think you probably thought that I mispronounce that word because we don't use that word as I said it in this way, don't we? We tend, when we're talking about someone who has an extreme physical handicap, we might call them invalid, but we wouldn't say to them that they are invalid because that would mean something more than we mean, but it kind of means the same, doesn't it? It's the same word. This man was invalid. And and that tells us that, that In our world, there are really two labels of people. You're either valid or you're invalid. Whatever else you are, you're one of those two things, right? The invalid people, according to the worldly ways of thinking, are, as John says here, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Those were the people that had gathered around this pool. And this was the place where, in Jerusalem at the time, the upper class people didn't go. These were the homeless people, the addicted people, the the mentally ill. Or you might expand that beyond, you know, with other labels and say these were the unintelligent, the uneducated, the underserved. If they have an un before whatever word describes them, then that's where they are. these, These are the invalid people. And the world suggests that these are invalid. And then there are the valid ones. All the ones who are not at this pool, everyone at the other end of the spectrum, those who didn't feel a need to come to this place and wait at this pool in Jerusalem. In other words, these are the people who don't need grace. Now, that should clue you into the invalidity of the world's labels, shouldn't it? Because when it comes to grace, there's really no distinction among any of us Because grace is bigger even in the way that we view our labels. You know, some of us, if you if you think about yourself honestly and reflect on yourself, you might consider yourself to be valid, relatively anyway, because we tend to compare ourselves to other people, and relative to those people, I'm valid for whatever reason. And some of you consider yourselves to be invalid despite how others might think of you because you know yourself and the the things you struggle with or your shortcomings or your failures that maybe other people don't see and so you think of yourself 
in that way. But the, the reality of the gospel is that the grace of God is bigger than how you label yourself. I mean, what does it mean to be valid? The dictionary description of it is that it means to be useful or acceptable or effective. But what is it about someone being needy that makes them to be invalid according to that? What what makes a person to be useful or acceptable or effective? I will tell you this, it's not a label. A label is not what makes one to be so. But rather, it's the image of God in a man, the image of God in a woman, the image of God in a child. It is that the signature of your maker is on your soul, and though it's smudged, it's still his signature. And that alone makes you valid. You are plagued with temptations and with sins. You're plagued with weaknesses and with failures. You're plagued with so many things that are, in the eyes of the world, invalidities. But the grace of God is bigger than that. I mean, this man had been lying there at this pool for 38 years. For four decades, this man had been going to this pool, maybe lying there the whole time. I don't know. He was beyond useless. And Jesus says, that's enough. Because my grace is bigger than your label. So God's grace is bigger than labels that we live, but it's also bigger than the barriers that we construct. And we do construct barriers against God's grace. Because honestly, we don't want God's grace. What do we want instead? We want fairness. Because fairness is the measure that we expect of one another in our society. My, every sports fan wants for referees to, to officiate a game fairly, right? Every student wants for their teacher, their professor, to grade the exams fairly and not to favor one student over another. And that's fine and good as far as it goes, but that's not a gospel category. And so we construct barriers against grace because grace is more than we want. One barrier that we construct is superstition. So why were these people gathered at the pool in the first place as John accounts to us here? The answer is in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, if you were to search in your Bible for verse 4, or I don't know if it was on the screen or not, but verse 4 is not there. Do you see that? There is no verse 4. It's not there in the text because it is probably where it belongs, which is in a footnote at the bottom of the page, if you have a study Bible, maybe. And there it will tell you that verse 4 said something like this, An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after stirring the water was healed of whatever disease he had. John didn't write that. Textual scholars in studying the Bible and and examining these sorts of things have determined that that was not the case. It was kind of scribbled into the text later on by a well-intended Christian who was trying to explain why these people would gather at this pool by the sheep gate. But we know John didn't write it because of the theology that it implies, which is what I would call 
right place, right time theology. God will give you a chance if you're in the right place at the right time, and you better be first to get there. Probably in the years after, you know, the Christians and and scholars who looked at this would, would realize, well, these people did gather at the pool, but nobody was ever healed. And so to say that they were healed is untrue. That, that wasn't what happened. And so they removed the verse from, but they left it in the footnote. So verse 4 isn't there. That's not the gospel that John knew. But still, we cling, we tend to cling to superstitions just like these people were doing, even if subconsciously. You know, you, you all have thought at some point, I didn't behave well today, and so God is surely mad at me. I'll do better next week. That's some of the, the inherent superstition in our souls that we wrestle with. And there are so many more. But no, God is not mad at you because his grace is bigger than your superstition. There's another barrier that we construct to put in front of grace and keep it away from us. And we see that here, and that is pity. Jesus comes to this man, and he asks him a question that, if you think about it, is kind of strange. What does he say to the man? Do you want to be healed? I would kind of expect the man who's been sitting there for 38 years, hoping for healing, to answer maybe with sarcasm. No, I don't want to be healed. I've just been sitting here for 38 years. What do you think, idiot? That's probably how many would respond to that question. Duh, this is why I'm here. Or he might have said to him with optimism, yes, I would really love to be healed. Are you offering healing to me? I would, I would love that, please. But that's not how he responds. He doesn't give either of those responses. Sadly, no, what does he say? He says, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred and other people get there before I do. I just can't, I can't get there. What's he doing? He's looking for pity. I got nobody to help me. They got friends. I got no friends. That's what he's saying. He he, he wants pity. We want pity. When I was in eighth grade, I played basketball through middle school and high school. And in eighth grade, I was one of the big kids and and was a pretty good player. I scored points on the team and so on. And one game, I, I sprained my ankle badly enough that I was on crutches for the following week. And at school, I was, would crutch around down the hallway and had a friend carrying my books or whatever, and, and, and friends would come up to me and say, oh, how is your ankle? I'm so sorry you got hurt. Are you going to be ready for the game on Saturday? And if Jesus had come to me at that moment and asked me, do you want to be healed? I would have said, I don't think so. Not right now, anyway. Maybe come back at game time on Saturday, but for now, I'm kind of enjoying the pity. You've been there before, maybe? This is just kind of what we do, right? I mean, feel sorry for me because I'm a tragic hero. We all, we all kind of want to be a tragic hero at times. We use pity to blackmail people, to get what we want, to get attention. We don't, we don't want to feel better because that would stop the gravy train. We love pity. But, but grace is bigger. I mean, I love Jesus' response to the man in verse 8. What does he say to them? You know, Jesus doesn't, and I don't know, maybe he knelt down with him and put his arm on his shoulder and smiled at him, or maybe he didn't. Maybe he just kind of stood away like this. I don't know. 
But what does he say? Get up. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. That's all he does. He's not going to give the guy pity. I love it. Just get up. You know, life is hard. It is for everybody. Your calendar is full. Your job is demanding. The summer is hot. Your feelings are hurt. Your friends don't understand you. Your family doesn't pay attention to you. The list is so long, isn't it? And we want pity for it all. And pity love can corner you in a dark spot. But grace is bigger. The grace of God is bigger than then pity, and Jesus won't leave you in pity. He'll give you grace. But there's another barrier that I want you to see that we construct against grace, and that is rules. Okay? Verse 9, at the end of it, John tells us the inevitable qualifier of this event. Now that day was the Sabbath. And you know that means trouble, right? It always does in these gospel accounts. Now, that day was the Sabbath, and that's a qualifier. It tells you that trouble is coming. And the religious leaders saw this man walk away. And you would think that they would rejoice. I mean, you would think that he's been there for four decades, and you would think that they would have recognized the man by now. And you would think they would see him walking away for the first time in 40 years, and they would say, whoa. Wait a minute. Now, you're the guy that's been there for 40 years, and now you're walking away? What happened? I mean, praise God. That's a miracle. And today's the Sabbath. We actually now have something to really praise God about. Let's go together and do that. You would think that they might respond like that, but they don't. What do they do? Verse 10, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to do this. This is how they respond. It's, it's really remarkable. And they also want to know who told him that he could because they want to go and get that person too. And, and notice, this is the bigness of grace. The man didn't even know who it was. He, he couldn't answer them. He didn't know. I don't know who it was. I mean, his response to grace is kind of a shoulder shrug. I don't know. Some guy told me I could walk and now here I am. And I'm going. I mean, he's just consuming the goods, isn't he? And then Jesus finds him in the temple, and it's grace upon grace. And, and Jesus interacts with him, and he doesn't say, hey, you didn't keep the rules. But rather, Jesus comes to him and says, see, you are well. Now stop putting yourself in that dark place. And how did the man respond to that? What did he do? He went and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. He went and told on him until Jesus finally had to say, My father is working until now. I, too, am working. Now, I believe in the Sabbath. The Sabbath is an important Christian reality. And Christians take different positions in regard to how to observe the Sabbath properly. But whatever your view is on it, it's not a time to cut off grace. Rather, it's a time to celebrate grace. That's why Christians come together on the Sabbath, to celebrate the grace of God together. Um, In our rule-keeping, we tend to twist this story, and we want to say in our heart of hearts, if Jesus would heal this man in this way, a man who doesn't respond right, then won't he heal my invalidity quickly too? 
because we all have our own invalidities, right? Whatever it is, you know, and we want to promise, I'll keep the rules. I mean, if, if he'll do this for me, then I'll, I'll respond right. Whether it's heartache or social desperation or financial strain or relational discontentment, again, the list goes on and on. Whatever it is, if Jesus will only heal me of that thing, I'll respond right. Well, maybe he will, but maybe he won't yet. Why? Because God's grace is bigger than temporary relief. It's aimed at taking your eyes off of the little things that you love and turning your eyes onto your big grace God who loves you. Grace is bigger than the barriers that we construct. And then also, finally, God's grace is bigger than the judgments that we face. I want you to see that here as well. This is the sort of incident, again, that got Jesus into trouble. Not only is he breaking their rules, but he also, and even worse, is suggesting that he's equal with God by suggesting that God is his Father. And that would be blasphemous if it were not true. And so there are many who would be eager to judge that sort of claim, and they rose up to do so in the account here, didn't they? There are many people who love to judge. In fact, all people love to judge. Every one of us loves to judge because it gives you a feeling of power. It gives you a feeling of importance, a feeling of validity even. Years ago, I got called for jury duty, and I I went, and I actually got selected for the jury. And it was uh, a jury trial, and the, the, um, the, the crime was assault with a deadly weapon. And so it was a one-week trial, and it was a fascinating experience. Some of you have done that before, and if you have a chance, you should do it. It's, it's amazing and fascinating to see. But all week long, every day, we were treated with the utmost respect. Every time we, the jurors, came in from the back hallway into the jury box, the court bailiff would stand up, and in a, a big baritone voice, he would call out, All rise! And the whole courtroom would stand up as we, the judges, the jury, filed into the jury box. And until we sat down, they stood. And I tell you what, it felt good. I felt big all week. In fact, I began to think, I need to to initiate this sort of thing at home. When I come into the (laughs) living room, one of my kids stands up and says, all rise. Wouldn't that be cool? We never did that. But it makes you feel good for the the self-validation that it allows. Many love to judge by the law. But there's only one judge who matters, and he judges by grace. Verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And this judge loves to do good. For the invalid. So, do you feel the judgment of others? Do you feel that you don't fit in? That you don't wear the right labels? Maybe you see at times on the face of other people their disapproval of you. You just haven't lived up to the standard of whatever it might be. And maybe you don't even know what the standard is, but you can see the judgment on their face. Do you feel the judgment of others? Or maybe. Do you feel judgmental of others? 
They haven't met your expectations. You know you would have done better if you were in their shoes. Right? Do you feel that? I mean, one of the cultural markers of a church is that when a visitor walks into a congregation, they feel to a degree one of two things. Either they feel judged because they don't fit they're new, or they feel seen and loved. That's a great marker of a church. We're all tempted to judge. Every one of us is, but it's just not that simple. You need to remember the words of the judge himself. Whoever believes has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So my question for you is, do you believe in the grace of God? Do you believe that out of God's overflowing favor, which you did absolutely nothing to deserve, he has marked you with his signature, and because of the one who signed it, it will never wash away? Do you believe that? Years ago, we took Mary and I with our kids a family trip to Seattle, Washington, and and it was in the summertime. The Texas Rangers were playing there. It was a decade ago or so, and it was in their World Series kind of heyday. And we went to the, the game. We went to see the, the Rangers play at the Seattle Mariners. And I, had, I knew in advance and had prepared with my kids. I, we had brought baseballs and a pen, and we had gone early and gotten tickets down by the visitors' dugout. We got there two hours early to go and be there for the warm-ups, and, and we thought maybe we could get a signature on a ball. And my kids went down to the, the edge of the field, and, and a, a nice man was there kind of helping them, calling players to come over, but no players would come, and for a while, nobody was, they were just occupied with their warm-up. And finally, the big fish came near. Josh Hamilton, if you remember Josh Hamilton, the Rangers' all-star outfielder and home run slugger, a mountain of a man who was an amazing athlete came close, and this man called out to him, hey, Josh, these kids came all the way from Dallas to see you play. Come and sign their baseballs. And he did. He came straight over to the rail, straight to our kids. And when the crowd saw him coming, they began to swarm down towards the railing. And Hamilton took a ball from one of my kids, and he backed up, and, and, and with a deified kind of voice, he said, back up, there are kids down here. And then he went back and he took the pen from my kids and signed the ball. And he signed each of their balls with the pen that we had brought. And I was sitting there thinking, this is amazing. This is why we came. And the right player came. I mean, of all players, here's the one. These baseballs are going to be worth something someday, maybe. And I thought, one of them belongs to my daughter. She's not a baseball fan, and maybe she'll let me have hers. She didn't. But after they got the signature and the balls back, they came up in the scuffle through the crowds and all. They <clears throat> handed me the ball to take a look, and I saw the signature, and my heart sank because the signature was smudged. And I realized with all the preparation, we were there in the right place at the right time. We had the right ball. The right player came to sign it, and I had brought the wrong kind of pen. It had watery ink. I was just heartbroken. And some weeks later, I was telling a friend about it. <clears throat> Can you believe I brought the wrong pen and just messed the whole thing up? And, and my friend said, well, is there still a signature on the ball? And, and I said, yeah, it's still there. And he said, it's still Josh Hamilton's signature. 
and my daughter still hadn't given me that baseball. (laughs) He was right. It's still his signature. Now listen, this is grace. The king of the universe made you. The God of heaven took you in his hands, and he signed his name on your soul. Of course the ink is smudged now, but it's still his signature. Because the grace of God is bigger than any smudge. His grace is bigger than the labels that you live. It's bigger than the barriers that you construct against it. And you do construct barriers against it. And God's grace is bigger than the judgments that you might face. Do you want to be healed? You can't even begin to answer that question adequately for yourself. But that's okay. Because God's grace is bigger. Can we pray? Father in heaven, thank you that your grace is bigger than all the obstacles that we would put in front of it and the resistance that we would show towards it. Thank you that you have shown your grace to us in Jesus and you continue to extend it to us even now. Thank you that you have loved us in Christ and it is by grace through faith that we have been saved. We pray that as we come to this communion table together that you would remind us of that tangibly with bread and wine, that you would show us in our hands and in the taste of our mouths that you remember and you love us in Jesus. And for this, we honor you in his name. Amen.